welcome back to Good Noise. We've been on hiatus, so if you're returning, great. And if you're joining us for the first time, we're very glad you're here. Here's what's on the plate this week. This is the drilling company's 25th year of production. Wow. We've had a lot of experience in new works and Shakespeare. We thought we would start 2023 talking about where they overlap. So where are our modern Shakespeare's? What happens when a playwright decides to not only tell a story, but use verse? We thought we would take a look at a couple of playwrights who have embraced the challenge of verse in writing a contemporary play. This week we'll feature Ronan Noon, a past contributing drilling company playwright whose verse work, The Smuggler, is on stage now at Irish Rep. We're also joined by Mick Melanthi, who plays the one and only role of Tim Finnegan. We'll follow next week with an interview with Brian Dykstra, who's been a frequent playwright presence in many past drilling company projects. So without further ado, here's the wonderful conversation we had a week ago with Ronan Noon and Mick Melanthi about The Smuggler. Here with Ronan Noon, the playwright of The Smuggler, currently on stage at Irish Rep uh, and a former drilling company playwright. So it's great to have you on Good Noise. Right off the bat, how did you get started writing a verse play? Um, I was about three quarters of the way through uh, telling a story uh, with one character and suddenly, and it's not suddenly, a couple of the lines started rhyming, end rhymes. And I, I let it go and then it happened again. And it clicked inside me that this was the bigger challenge. And so once the challenge was set, I realized that it also was connected to spectacle. And, right. and, and in terms of theater, uh, that just oh. attracted me immediately. Right. So I went right. right back to the beginning and I had a look at it and I said, let's see if I can rhyme this out. And uh, I went from the top line and started rhyming. And uh, it, it became a personal discovery rather than was this going to be a good play it was more of a challenge um almost like a jigsaw puzzle and so it allowed me then to return to the basics of doing it for myself not for anybody else did i expect the play to actually be performed no and i had actually come off a play where i had a bad review and i said this i'm not doing this anymore this is just soul destroying stuff you're just done with the, the You're just done with the theater. Just done with the theater. It's part of the business, but you, you do that. Sure. It just wraps around you in terms of darkness, and there's an easier way to try and live life. There's absolutely nothing worse. There's. It just. I. I, I tell you how bad it was. Metaphorically, yeah. this plays into it. After I heard the review, I went into my bathroom and sat beside the toilet and turned off the light. I just wanted to sit beside right. something that just felt like where I should be right now. And there isn't much you can do. Yeah. There's no there's no recompense. Like you can't, you know, reach out and start screaming to the world to say this is unjustified. It's part of the business. And right. and also uh, the longer you're at it, you understand that this is actually sometimes the best plays are the ones that divide opinion. Um, but right. you need to have toughened up your skin along the way. But what it does for you, for a writer anyway, for me, is so it allows you to step back, realize you never want to do this again, which 
goes against your very nature because why would you do this unless you wanted to do it? Right. Time passes by and then you make a deal with yourself to write another story, but never to share it with anyone, not to put it on a stage, not to give it to an actor. And so under those conditions, you come back to the very basics of why you did it in the first place, which is to just have learned the ability to be able to tell a story. And so that's that's how the smuggler started. I knew I had something still, you know, tumbling around inside of me. And I said, uh, I got to put pen to paper. It's summertime. I have, you know, the kids are out of the house. Let's see what happens. Sure. And so I did. You know, that took me uh, probably a year. But along the year was recovery in terms of getting back into the sense of appreciation for, for telling stories and a cheap rhyme. I love the cheap rhyme. Once right. when you hit two rhymes that just are so cheap. And one one of my mentors was Derek Walcott, who won okay. a Nobel Prize for Literature, right? A poet. And he used to introduce me to Yeats's Purgatory and Crap's Last Tape and and um, plenty of other but I know if he saw this, he he would look at me and say, Oh, <laughs> It wasn't all just cheap. Some of them were expensive rhymes too, but it there's there sure. it made me laugh. And once I started laughing, again, sure. it's a great test. Then you can say, okay, we're on the right journey here. So, and slow recovery re- returns, and and you begin again. So this process, this was kind of a resurrection for you. Yeah, absolutely, that- absolutely. The height of the challenge was a little bit of the point. I, I, you know, you start off in this business almost demanding success hoping that you can become a playwright that doesn't have to struggle and struggle to earn some money and have to, you know, waiter and do all the odd jobs you do. But that's that's also part of the journey. But you only learn that as you look back on it. And so then as you get to a place where your plays are doing well and you've become uh, decent at your art, then you realize it was never about that. It was never about success. It was about becoming the best farrier in the village. I wanted to, you know, if you had a horse, I wanted to be the one that you wanted to bring the horse to. I wanted to learn how to be the best craftsperson you could be. And so then it became about skill and challenge. And that, to me, I found fascinating. We're welcoming to the conversation Mick Malanfi, who's currently appearing in The Smuggler Irish Rep. Uh, Mick, thanks for jumping in with us. You're very welcome, Hamilton. Thank you for uh, bearing with me. I was rushing to the theater. The rhymes, do they all come to you in your head or do you have to look them up? You have to look them up. Now, some of them will come to you in your head, but you have to look them up. You'll find a word that, and because you're looking for a concrete image that you can sell in a way that frames itself in an audience's mind so they can see what they need to see. And so that you may then need to make sure that the rhyme you hit has the same concrete image that leaves them. So... It's important, but the very essence of saying that you're writing a play in, in verse oftentimes will put people off. We're like, because you think it's going to be, you know, <clears throat> Alexander Pope or with ABAB Ryman, and this is not that at all. This is you trying to make sure that the story is maintained, the narrative trajectory is there, and the characters are being developed at the same time as the audiences are compelled to keep watching. So the rhyme is not just about just doing a rhyme for rhyme's sake. You have to make sure that the story is still being driven through. Um, and Mick, how did you begin to discover the character? I was very fortunate that um, Ronan trusted me. I, I've known Ronan for a long time. I'm a big fan of Ronan's work. And uh, one of the first shows I saw in New York when I moved here was his blowing of Balliagall up at the Irish Chart Centre. So I've been a 
a fan and an admirer of his work for a long time. Indeed, even during First Irish, during Origins First Irish, about 10 years ago now, I think he brought a play to the Upper East Side to Ryan's daughter, which is a business which I used to own, uh, the Compass Rose. And that was the first time I got to kind of see his work up close with uh, the wonderful director, David Sullivan. So when David and Ronan kind of both came to me with this play, and um, I was aware of their work, they were aware of my work. And I think the, the one really kind of exciting thing when I first read the play was um, Ronan and David were very uh, gracious in that they kind of allowed me to kind of chart a bit of a course for Tim uh, from the outset. I think, um, I think it was a kind of a natural occurrence. The Dublin accent sits very kind of um, easily with me. I'm from Dublin originally. I was born in Dublin. So you're also from Dublin or? I'm from uh, Clifton and Connemara. I, I lived in Dublin for a short time when I was younger, but when I was, when I was working on the play, I tried a variety of accents to see how musical the play would sound. And uh, I even tried American accents. So the accent that landed best was a Dublin accent coming from a kind of a Shanachie nature, the old Irish way of talking and telling a story. And, and there's a, a lovely musicality to uh, a Dublin accent. And so this felt like it translated very well towards that. A Shanachie. The Shanachie is, is the storyteller in the village. That's the best way to put it. And when we were growing up, you had the one channel. No, it sounds like we're so old when we say things like that. But if it, we did the one channel. And on that channel, oftentimes on a Sunday afternoon, was a guy called Eamon Kelly, who was well-renowned as a Shanachie in Ireland. He was from County Kerry. And he would just sit by the fireside and tell a story for about 20 minutes. And it was just, and even as a child, you were compelled to listen to it. And it just, it had the land in the voice. It had the people in the voice. It had a turn of phrase that kept you so engaged. There was a wit that was sparkling. And I remember that at that time, it just attracted me. And so uh, I'd like to think that there's a legacy in terms of capturing the smuggler from that. And maybe it's also a legacy in the Irish and being able to tell a story. I mean, the Shanachie is up there beside the king. Well, uh, it's I because Mick is here, I have to ask, how do you keep it in your head? What do you do when things go slightly awry? Ultimately, it's storytelling. You know, it really is storytelling. And and I think we do, as Irish folks, just as a generalization, but we do have a great tradition of storytelling and stuff. And the basis of knowing how to tell a story is understanding what the story is, A through B through C. Yeah. Um, I grew up, me and my dad would sit around for hours drinking cups of tea, just telling jokes back and forth. Um, I've also worked and owned pubs here in New York City for a while. I've worked in bars since I was 27. So the idea of holding a story and holding fort or court as, um, as Ron just described here with the Shanachie, I think that's something that comes naturally to a lot of people in the service industry and stuff. So sure. in terms of learning the lines, I've always found it very, it's about understanding what the story is from the outset. And then basically for me, it's always coloring by numbers almost. You color it in, you know, with the words, uh, you get into the rhythms, you find your own rhythms, you create rhythms. Um, I find musicality was really, really helpful. I will sing the words to myself. I will distract myself. My wife was driven crazy because I'd be in the kitchen cooking for about three weeks with bits and pieces of the script hanging all over the place as I'm cooking and cleaning. And I'd look at it, go back to it and just repeat. And just really getting into the, the, the bones of a play, trying to understand what every single word and what every single space means 
and then coloring it for myself. And that's generally just, that's generally what my process is. Again, I've had this place sitting with me now for over five years. So right. there's a certain amount of um, learning that's already been done. Sure, certainly sure. the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months, the work that we've done, myself, Ronan and Connor, and our assistant, uh, Bailey, here at the Irish Rep, Bailey Bass, um, really kind of helped us solidify it. And it's kind of helped me find a lot more now and, and kind of color it in as much as we can, you know? Uh, describe a little bit, what was the process like? Um, I, I mentioned, yeah, that, uh, and I don't know if even Mick knew this, but I, I, I had a bad review maybe six or seven years ago and I just went into the bathroom and I sat beside the toilet rather than sitting on it and thought this is the best place for me. But in, in to, to recover from that was I started writing this play and obviously I, I did it for my own self. And so I maintained that as I wrote it over the next year. And so once it was complete, it's just natural for anybody who's in the theater business to say, what's it like out loud? And so then you call up a friend against better reason and you ask the friend to come over to the house and then you have a few drinks with the friend and they start reading it and you've now allowed somebody in. And so that happened. And then somebody else rang me and said, listen, we're doing this thing at a restaurant. Would you like to read anything new you have? And so, you know what? I'll do it myself. I'll just perform. I won't even give it to anybody else. And so I go to a restaurant, Urbalucci in Boston. It's me and 10 people. And I, I read the play from top to bottom. And I'm like, oh, this is this is somewhat enjoyable. And and uh, as, as it gets there, I bring it back to my old theater. Then now I'm bringing it into a theater, Boston Playwrights Theater, where I teach and, and work and I'm an alum of. And I play it with uh, two characters. I just want to see what it's like if you just played it with two characters. So you, now you're just playing with it. But really what sure. you're doing is avoiding the obvious. You want to put it on stage, which is what I was not wanting to do from the very beginning because I was trying to recover. <laughs> you're quitting the theater. Yeah, they call, you made this the play. And, yeah, yeah, you're quitting the theater and this play was getting in the way. And so I, and then I, I called up David Sullivan and I said, David, what do you think? And he said, Mick. And I said, yes. And I said, OK, what do you think we should do? And he said, I'll ring up George Heslin and ask him if he wants to put it up at the Origin First Theatre Festival in 2019 and ask Mick. And I said, great. And so Mick came involved then with David and myself. And again, there's no money involved. It's right. just pure love of theatre and asking of people of their time, sweat sure. equity and everything. And uh, Mick learns off 9,000 words <laughs> for five performances at the first Origin Fest in 2019. And David directs them and, uh, and it has its first performances in New York City. And it wins uh, an award for best playwright. And that springboards us off into the unknown. And I, again, that, that journey was probably three three years but the recovery in terms of allowing myself back into uh, telling stories and enjoying it, uh, it that, that was immense. And, and in many ways, that, that's what The Smuggler has done for me. It's crucial. It seems to have happened right before COVID, which obviously was a time when you probably wound up doing some writing because you'd gotten more of a, a sense of the theater again in yourself. Um, uh, is that wrong to assume? No, it's not wrong to assume. If anything, uh, you know, I had a play that I had written many years before that called The Second Girl, and which was quite, you know, dark and kind of miserable. 
and COVID brought me back into the light. Like if we're, if we're, if we're going to live under the place where we're not allowed to see each other, then you're going to have to look at things to make the world amazing. And so you start looking at the grass and then the flowers pop up and you're like, that's amazing. The sun comes up every day. And so you, you, I started looking at the world for the amazing things in it. And that then brought the positivity back into the place. And then I returned into thirst, uh, the second girl, and turned that into a much more more buoyant and bright thing. And, and then I had Smuggler beside me. And so uh, that's that's what I, I, I worked on over those time then when I was during COVID. Well, uh, you mentioned Origins First Irish and George Heslin, who was the artistic director then, and uh, which is apropos moment to mention, of course, now the artistic director of Origins First Irish Festival is Mick Malumpy, who's here with us right now. So now there's this verse play. How did you wrap yourselves around the idea of getting an audience for a verse play in New York City? Well, we were due after the springboard that um, Ronan just spoke about with the play getting the recognition it really deserved from Origin First Irish back in 2019. Um, Kieran from the Irish rep, Kieran O'Reilly, approached, approached us, came to us basically, uh, with an interest about it and then we were scheduled to actually do it rehearsals were due to start on st patrick's day 2020 which was basically the day before the 15th of march when everything shut down in the city so you know it's really a testament to rowan's tenacity but also the, the support that we received from everyone here at the irish rep that you know even through covid they always had it on the calendar and when we kind of came out the other side of covid with you know yourself, all that's going on in the off-Broadway world here in New York. It's not easy at the moment, but um, they did. They really stuck with us and they figured out a time for us to get it on. So obviously they were convinced that in the pre-COVID days that this was a story that they could get bums on seats for. In the meantime, I took over the role at Origin and still had this idea to kind of get this up on stage. So again, it's it, it's like what Ronan said there a minute ago, the sweat equity that so many people put into these projects and put into the life of a play um, is just really amazing to see. It's for me personally as well, just with my role as Origin, recently with the first Irish festival, it's simply a matter of calling up. It's simply a matter of giving, allowing people a chance, giving people a chance, letting them, you know, trust me to give them a chance. And people do. People just they jump right in. They roll their sleeves up. How it would get produced, that was far from all of your consideration when you began that because you were at a different place as a playwright. Oh, certainly. The last thing you think about is money when it comes to the theatre anyway, except how are we going to get it to produce something? If you can get a play to have a life, then that's just, that's the magic. That's when that occurs. But it, right. in, in this case, you often hear of the anecdote of the play that you don't expect anybody <laughs> to pay attention to becomes the play that they pay attention to it goes back down to mick taking on the role in the first place saying i'm, I'm going to do this and learn nine thousand words and by the way sorry to interrupt sorry to interrupt and also rehearse shadow of a gunman there's a certain yeah. amount of insanity there's a certain amount of insanity involved in all this too lads you know yeah <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I forgot. They were doing the trilogy, Sean O'Casen's trilogy. He was in two of the plays and he was learning this 9,000 word roll off at the same time. And and so you you really, it goes back to the testament to, to do theatre, you have to love theatre. And so the question you rarely ask is what I'm getting paid. It's more often, is this a juicy enough role for me to sink my teeth into to make me a better actor? And uh, obviously that's what happened with Mick as well. And you can see too, that it's paid off. Did you have any inspirations as a verse playwright? I don't know if I came into the project thinking I'm a verse playwright. I just saw myself as a, as, as a storyteller. 
the challenge of how to tell the story in the best way. I find that if you are going to try and bring people into the theater and get them out of the couch from Netflix, you're going to have to offer something that gives them a sense that they are immersed in the theater. And that always has to be immersive. But I understood that if we put this in a bar and we actually turned the audience into customers and we told a story around them and you had an actor like Mick who is able to work while telling a story in rhyme, that's an extra spectacle and serving them drinks and spinning bottles. Then suddenly you realize, oh, I'm going to get off the couch and spend the 50 bucks and go and enjoy this as an experience. And then if the ideas in the play actually resonate, then it offers offers conversation too. But that's how I see theater in many ways. I think you're in a battle against uh, uh, so many other ways to actually enjoy your evening time. So you better bring them something that makes them say that was worth it. And that's 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 how the smuggler kind of started evolving as well. So it was the theatricality of it as much as anything else that really inspired you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I mean, in terms of inspirations, you have to think back to stuff like uh, the obviously the Irish have uh, you're inspired by the fact that we are storytellers. We grow up with the sense of who can tell a good story, who's able to tell a story. Do you leave a mark after you go to the big great sky? Have you left a story behind you? These are things we measure ourselves by. But then you read the greats as well along the way. And, you know, the crap's last tape is something that just lies there with you. And, and you look at purgatory. It wasn't just about the uh, story all the time, but it was also about the challenge and how to tell the story. And Yeah, it's, it's a lovely experience because you do, you're kind of on your feet. You have to operate like you are very much like a boxer in a ring. You don't know what's kind of coming at you. And they're having some wonderful experiences of people really kind of engaging. Really interesting what happened last Friday. The first few minutes, basically, you are in Tim's bar. You're basically in a pub. He's serving you. And there's a little bit of banter going back and forth as I'm serving some cocktails to a few of the customers. And there was one lovely little gentleman in the front row. (laughs) And my name is Melamphy, which is a very unusual name. There's not that many Melamphys out there, you know. This one gentleman in the front row, he says, hi. He says, I just want to let you know. I says, yeah. He says, my name's John. I says, nice to meet you, John. He said, yeah, my name's John Malamphy. So now, of course, I'm, I'm preparing. I'm in the show. I'm preparing to get stuck in. And, of course, for a moment, it took me out of it because I was about to be like, oh, Jesus, where are you from? And I thought, sure. my first question was, how do you spell it? And he said, M-O-L-L-A-N-P-H-Y, which is different to mine. Mm-hmm. But I caught myself. And I says, well, I said, look, John, I said, it's really nice to meet you. My name's Tim Finnegan, but I know a guy in New York called Mick Melampi. He's an actor. <laughs> not very good. It's not very good. He's actually kind of crap. But I'll let him know that. I'll let him know you were asking. And nice transition. Poor, and the poor guy almost fell off the chair laughing because I was, I, was, I was about to go with it, you know. Um, Did you have uh, two people at the end of the performance went up and hugged you while you were doing well, your... I did, I, well, I just... One couple sat at one of the tables and, of course, you're having a bit of banter. People have tipped. They've left tips and everything. Sure. It's great. But there was one couple, one night, I went out with her husband or boyfriend or whoever, but she was wearing a pair of uh, Christian Louboutin shoes which the red soles in them. So, of course, I picked... I said, Louboutin. She was like, oh, my God, you know, Christian. I was like, of course. So I went into why all the soles of his shoes are always red because he was surrounded by sisters and he used to paint their nails red and he thought it was so feminine and sexy. And at the end of the show, I'm going out and I'm taking my bow. <laughs> and they got up and like they started hugging me and taking selfies and all. To the middle of March, right? Yeah. March 12th. Right. Yeah, March 12th. We just right. got extended. And it's actually very refreshing because, as we touched on already, it's been tough for off-Broadway. You know, we don't get the tourists the way the Great White Way gets it. 
you know, we rely on our audiences from with around 25 miles radius around New York. So they've really been coming back out now at the very start of this new season for the Irish rep between us and of course the wonderful show going on upstairs end game. Yeah, we're, we're all very, very happy with just the fact that we're, we're filling them up every night. We're packing them in and I've got relations and friends and family calling me saying, why can't I get tickets? <laughs> you want to go to irishrep.org if you want to get some tickets and you should get them fast. So we're going to give a big thank you to Ronan Noon and Nick Melanfi. Go see The Smuggler if you want to see terrific storytelling and verse in action. For all your listeners, Hamilton, there is a code for friends and family. There's, it's Mick, M-I-C-K. You get your friends and family discount. Fantastic. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Ronan. Thanks, there Hamilton. we are. And that is some good noise. Listen next week when we'll drop our interview with playwright actor Brian Dykstra and hear from another verse playwright just how and why he does it. Thanks for listening to Good Noise. If you enjoy the listen, you can go to drillingcompany.org and drop a ducat in the bucket. That's drillingcompany.org. That's right. Write it down. Right on our website. Thanks for listening to Good Noise. (laughs) 